All right, if you got your Bible tonight, please turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. God is good all the time. You know, life is good, except when it's not. Got a phone call this, this week from one of my best friends from high school. And uh, he, was, he called me and I asked him, I said, how's it going? He said, well, other than the fact I just got fired, it's going pretty good. This was about the worst time he could be fired. And the situation his family is in, uh, his wife, for educational reasons, is stepping away from her job and uh, has a kid. They were depending on his income. About the worst time. The question is why? Why, Chris? Why now? Why would God allow something like that to happen? Uh, many of you uh, remember, some of the younger ones may not, 9-11, when that happened. We asked the question, why would God allow that to happen? Why would God allow terrible, evil, bad things to happen to good people? You've asked that question, maybe something's happened in your life. Why would God allow something like that to happen? Why would he allow me to go through something like that? That question is asked all around us. We know that suicides in America are at an all-time high. Uh, and if you or your family have been through that, you, you can't help but stop and ask the question, why, God, did you allow that to happen? Um, I, I think about the abortions, Roe versus Wade. How many times have you heard that in the last couple of weeks come up? Why does God allow mothers to do that to unborn children. Why, God? Why don't you stop that? Um, all those are great questions. I, I, I won't forget um, a time not too long ago I found myself speechless. I was at the children, uh, Children's Hospital in Atlanta at Scottish Rye. I went to see one of our children here who was up there and went and uh, right before uh, surgery was happening, prayed with the family. And uh, I knew that an acquaintance of mine and Renee's were uh, in the hospital because their newborn baby had cancer. And as I went down that oncology, oncology unit, I wanted to see them. Um, and as I went by every bed, that was filled with children with cancer. And uh, I walked in that room thinking I knew what I was going to say, knowing what I wanted to say. And when I got in that room with that family, I was absolutely speechless. I could do nothing but cry. And we just all cried together. And um, I, I, I left there wondering to myself, why? Why, God? These are just children. Why would you let something bad and terrible like this happen to them? Uh, I I'm, imagine at some point when um, that couple goes and talks with their pastor and they ask why. What would he say? So I want, I want to pose that question to you tonight. What would you say when uh, somebody truly seeking an answer, like my friend did when he called me and he asked me, what will you respond? How, what will you say when somebody asks you, why does God allow these evil things or, or whatever that happened to good people or to me? And when people ask that question, it's most of the time because something has happened to them. And so as you think about that question, and you've heard answers, and I've heard Christians dance around, and I've heard the answer be something like, uh, well, because uh, uh, evil is the absence of God, it's the absence of good. And though that may be true, but we believe that God is all-knowing, we believe God is all-powerful, and if he is all-powerful and all-knowing, why did he let that absence happen? Why did he step away from that? You say, well, sin or wrongdoing, but still, why? Why did he allow that to happen? And so I don't think that's a sufficient answer to the question. Uh, why, did, why did that happen? 
One, two, three, four. Check. All right. <laughs> we'll continue. Uh, if you will, would you stand with me? We're going to read John chapter 9. John chapter 9, much better. Thank you, Pastor. John chapter 9. I have small ears. My small ears and these mics, we don't get along. I don't even know how to turn it on. Thank you. All right, here we go. John chapter 9, in verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Can you see that happening? Can you imagine Jesus doing that? Verse 7. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which in interpretation means sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Father, tonight, uh, we as finite beings are seeking, it, seeking infinite, eternal answers to this question of why do bad things happen to good people. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our eyes, our ears. God, give us a burden to carry your word to others, to be the light of the world, as you are the light of the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I, I want us to look at this passage. We're going to try to cover all 40 verses or 38 verses tonight. So we're going to put on our pants and we are going to run. Okay. So, but I want us to look at the characters in this story. Uh, first of all, I want us to look at the disciples. Okay, I want us to look at this story through the eyes of the disciple. John is such an amazing writer. And really, he writes contrasting the relationship between uh, the disciples and Jesus here in these first verses. And then in the next section, we're going to look at another contrast he has in relationships. But look with me, if you will, in verse 1. As you think about this in your mind, it says, And as Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from birth. After I was first reading this passage, I, I, I thought, well, the disciples were going by, and the disciples, they stopped to look and debate about why this man was blind. But that's not who stopped. That's not what the Bible says. It was Jesus who stopped at this man. It was Jesus who recognized the blind man first. It was Jesus that sat down, I imagine, took a knee and looked at him. It was talking and conversating with this blind man. It was Jesus who recognized him. Uh, and this man was blind from birth. This is the first uh, and only congenital disease 
that Jesus deals with in the Gospels. The only disease uh, from birth that Jesus deals with. And so here is a man blind from birth. I believe this passage, why uh, the Lord led me here, thinking about the topic of evil and why bad things happen to good people, is because uh, this is a story where Jesus doesn't shy away. It's one thing I love about the Bible. It doesn't shy away from hard questions. Um, it, it wants to provide answers. In fact, I think it's the only book that does offer answers to life's questions. And so here, and here is this example of the only one in the Gospels where you have someone who has this disease from birth. Imagine being blind from birth. If some of us in here went blind, we already know what colors are. We already know what things look like or would have that picture in our mind. But this man never had those things in his mind. And it says, and his disciples ask him. So who asked the question to Jesus? It, the disciples ask him. And I imagine the scene, something like Jesus is taking a knee and he's talking to this man. He's looking at it. And the disciples are standing back like, why is Jesus talking to this guy? Does he know that this guy is a sinner, or does he not know about this guy? And so I imagine that's the posture when the question is asked. And I say first, let's look at the disciples, because uh, in chapter 9 of John, this is the first time the disciples as a whole is mentioned. Uh, from the first half of the book of John, um, the disciples are never mentioned. Jesus is teaching to the crowds. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus uh, points out, or John points out, that the disciples are speaking, that the disciples there, and Jesus and the disciples are having direct conversation. So I think John has something to say here for us to see about these disciples. And look what they ask him. Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What a question. <laughs> what a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents. Why would they ask that? Well, uh, in the book, in this chapter of John, in John chapter nine, the word sin is used nine times. It is predominantly probably the, the word most used in this, and it's never used as in he did a sin or that was a sin. It is a category of sin. Um, in other words, uh, the Pharisees uh, like to put people in categories. They were righteous people, and if you're not righteous, you're in the category of sinner. And so here they are trying to put this man in a category of that he and his parents are part of the sinner crowd. And so it, they believed, the Pharisees believed, um, in prenatal sin. That's why I ask, did his parents sin? Did he sin? They believed that a baby could uh, sin while in the womb. You may remember the story of Jacob and Esau in the Bible. When uh, Jacob grabbed Esau's leg, they would say Jacob was sinning. He was a deceiver and, and a con artist, even there in the womb. John the Baptist sleeped uh, in his mother's womb. All those things point to what the Pharisees would go on to believe and teach, that people could sin in the womb and come out with a disease or something wrong because of something wrong they did uh, inside the womb. Um, Job, you remember the book of Job. There's no book on suffering, I think, in the Bible, uh, unlike the book of Job. And you remember after Job lost his ten kids and all of his wealth, all of his prosperity, his closest friends come, and oh, what good friends they were. They acted like good friends to start with. They sit around, and they're just there like good friends should be when somebody goes through a loss and pain. They're just there. They're just letting Job talk, and, and they're just there to support him. But they only do that for about seven or eight chapters. And then they start saying, Job, there's no way 
that you don't have sin in your life. The only way something like this would happen to somebody is they have got to have some great sin in their life. Job, what is wrong with you? What kind of sin do you have in your life? And Job says, I swear there's nothing in my life. Check me out. God knows there is nothing in my uh, life that I know that is unrighteous. They say, Job, there's got to be something. So this kind of thought that uh, curses come for doing something wrong or diseases come for sins, that was the belief. And it's like what we were talking about, grace right there. The Pharisees, the Jews in that time had no concept of grace. I mean, it was like every time you do something wrong, God's waiting. Zap, got him. Oh, why? Boom, got him. I mean, just waiting for you to mess up. And that's not our God. But that is what they saw here. That's, that's their mindset getting into the text. If you obey God, blessings. If you disobey him, curses. That's the way they're looking um, at this. And, and look how Jesus responds. They ask the question, why? But look how Jesus responds. He doesn't look at why. He lets them know the purpose. Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. Um, so there's, some, there's a reason here, guys. There's a purpose. And, and what is the work of God? That's the, when I look at verse 3, I ask, well, what is the work of God he's talking about? Well, he answers it in verse 4. He says, I must work the work of him that sent me. Why did Jesus come? To do what the Father sent him to do. While it is day. So we're going to see day and night in the text. And our question is going to be, what is day and night in the text? Okay, The night comes when no man can work. Well, Jesus said, I'm here now. It's light now. I'm working now. I must work now. But there's night coming when no man can work. So I ask the question, is night when Jesus dies, resurrects, and go to heaven, is that when the night comes? Well, apparently not because he teaches his disciples, you will do greater things than I. Of course there's work to be done. Uh, Jesus says the gates of hell will not overcome the church. Peter, we're going to establish on, the, on, on what you confess to be true, that Jesus is Lord. The gate, there is work. You and I, we're the light of the world. We're the city on a hill. That's what he would tell and teach the disciples. So that's not what he's saying. He's saying there is coming a time. Darkness is coming, church, uh, when the church will no longer be here. And this world comes to an end. Uh, there will be darkness. When, when there, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Uh, there, there is coming a day when you will not, no longer be able to be saved. He said, that is coming. But why it is on its way, we must do the work. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and you're supposed to be doing the work. Here's what I'm trying to say. When Jesus saw this man, he saw the need that was there. They saw a sin that was there. They put him in a category. I'm glad we don't put people in categories, aren't you? Maybe hence just a little sarcasm in that. Uh, they're part of that community. Oh, that person is part of that political party, or, or they're a part of that sin that belongs to that community. That's not what Jesus did. It's exactly what J.R. prayed, that no matter who or, or what, they're people like we are. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against power and principality and rulers in dark places. You see, when Jesus looked at that, he saw something different than the disciples looked at. Get this. Haddon Robinson said, and I think it's true here in the text, what you see is determined by who you are. Think about it. Um, I don't really know much about art, not an art, but if, if somebody was into art and we were going to an art display and see something abstract, you know what I'm talking about, paintings, abstract paintings, they'd be like, man, look at that. I just see 
I just see life there. I just see, I see modern, I mean, I just see all this stuff happening and, and war and rage. And I'll be like, I don't see nothing. But look, somebody took their hand and just did like this. Like, well, I don't understand. I could do that. Uh, they're artistic. I'm not. They, they see it. I don't see it. Um, the, uh, Jesus makes the point in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? That parable. Remember the question they asked Jesus, trying to stump Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? And then and love your God and your neighbor. Well, then the question is, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus told the story. You remember the man is on the side of the road. He's all beat up. He's all tore up. And uh, the, the priest comes by. Well, he, he's the leader of the, of the synagogue. You know, he might think, well, if I touch him, if he's dead, if he dies on me, then I'm unceremonially clean. I, can't, I don't have time for that. Well, then the Levite comes by. He'd have been like the associate pastor of the day in the synagogue. He comes by. I've got duties to do at the synagogue. I don't have time for that. You know, I've got to. Well, then a Samaritan comes by. Samaritans were looked on as the Jews as filthy dogs. And he helps the man. You know the rest of the story. And so the application is, Jesus, who do you think really understands the commandment? Is it, is it the priest and the Levite, or is it this Samaritan that you, the people, you don't even, he's pretty much saying, you guys don't even really understand the commandment. It's this guy. He looked, the, the man, he looked and he saw a need. You guys looked and you saw a sinner. Same thing as you looked here. The disciples have fallen into the same trap. And what the disciples should have done was looked at this man who was blind, and they should have seen that something is wrong. There's a need here. You see, I think one of the reasons that evil exists uh, in this world that we live in, when Adam and Eve sinned, and this world was cursed, you know the Bible says in Genesis 3.17, it was God who cursed the world? Why? Why? What's the purpose of pain? Well, um, there's a girl in Atlanta named Ashlyn. She has a disease that's called CIPA, C-I-P-A. I don't know exactly what it stands for, but here's what it is. She has a disease that where she doesn't feel pain. Now, you think that'd be great, not to feel pain. It's terrible. She cannot play sports. She cannot go any part of her day without observation. If she was playing sports, she could sprain an ankle and never know it. And just keep on until it got worse. She has to do scans all the time to make sure nothing's wrong with her. It, she lives a terrible sheltered life because she feels no pain. God cursed the world. Why? Why is there pain in this world? So that man will know that something is wrong with it. Namely sin. Namely that sin separates us from God. And we as a church who have been saved and reconciled to God are here uh, to help and reach as the body of Christ out to others. Not just to reach out to reach out, but to reach out with that which truly heals the gospel of Christ. Now, my question is, is that a sufficient answer to why bad things happen to good people? Um, I don't think it's a significant answer. Let's keep going in the text and look, there's more. If you will, look with me. Uh, as we looked at the contrast between Jesus and the disciples, now I want us to look at the contrast between the Pharisees uh, and really uh, the blind man, and even the blind man and his parents. So now let's look from the view of the Pharisees. Um, so if we skip to verse 13, after the man was healed inside, he went through, his neighbors were like, who is that guy? Is that the guy that was blind? Some of them said, I don't, I don't, that looks like him, but I don't think that's him. Others are like, that, that looks like that guy. Well, then they take him and they bring him to the Pharisees for interrogation. And uh, it says in verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees, him that aforetime, him that before time was blind. 
Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospel of John, they've already had it out. Uh, Jesus has already pointed out their whitewashed tombs. They've got religion, but they don't have God. I mean, uh, in John 5, they already decided they wanted to kill him. In John 8, uh, they tried to stone him because he told them he was God and that God was his father, but Satan was their father. I mean, he's on them. I mean, it is crazy. They're going at it. Um, And what's the issue? Look at verse 14. The issue, here's the issue. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Um, I want to show you something real quick. Turn to verse 39. Just look at it real quick. Uh, at the end of the story, Jesus is having a, a great time. Uh, he goes, and, he, and the guy who's outcast, and um, he has this great conversation. He worships him. And then, then uh, verse 39, Jesus said to the man, For judgment I am coming to the world, that they which see may not see, and they which see might be made blind. He's like having an intimate conversation with this blind man who's been healed, that's been outcast, but now is a believer in him. Like a one-on-one conversation going on. And then verse 40, like out of the bushes, like paparazzi, just like, Hey, why are you talking about us? Like they come from nowhere in the text. Look at verse 40. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words, said to him, Hey, are we blind also? Like they come out of nowhere. They're just, they're following Jesus, trying to trap him. They are just on his heels all the time. And here's the thing. They don't know it, but Jesus is on their heels. Like Jesus is coming at them. They think he's coming at him. How do you know that? Well, look, look back at verse 14. It was a Sabbath day when he healed this man. Jesus, <laughs> in the Gospels, uh, probably more than what we have in the Gospels, but at least seven times heal somebody on the Sabbath day. Seven times. I imagine if I was one of the disciples and Jesus was like, we're going healing today, be like, why don't we do it tomorrow? Like, are you trying to get us killed? Let's do it on Monday. Like, let's just wait. Just No, we're, I'm, there's a purpose. We're doing it today. I mean, he is gunning for the Pharisees. He's trying. He's trying to get them. He is. Um, and why does, he, why does he use clay? Why does he use clay? Well, one of the Pharisee traditions that they put on top of the Sabbath day law commandment was that you couldn't knead dough on, on Saturday, on the Sabbath. So he's doing that. He's intentionally uh, doing that. Uh, and uh, why did he um, send him to a place called Sent? Well, one, he's trying to prove to them what? That I'm sent from God. But he's also, he made this guy walk a couple miles, uh, scholars believe, and that was too far to walk on the Sabbath. So <laughs> he's doing all this to break all of their traditional laws on purpose. Uh, and there was actually, and you're going to see there's a division in the Pharisees. One division says uh, that uh, on the Sabbath that you should do all these uh, traditions. You shouldn't walk. You shouldn't need dough. You, you can't spit. You can't do all these things. But there's another group that actually did have it right about the Sabbath, that Jesus is going to come out and support by his actions, who thought you can do good on the Sabbath. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is in telling the, um, why the S- Sabbath commandment was there. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? To give rest. And by healing people, you're giving them what? What was he giving? He was giving them rest. Uh, but uh, the Pharisees, one group, they were, they were missing it. And here, we're going to see it in the text. Uh, in verse 15, then again, the Pharisees asked him, uh, how had he received his sight? He said unto them, he put clay upon my eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God, because he keeps not the Sabbath day. Others, there's another's there, there in verse 6. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. There's a division there, too, that believe different things. In verse 17, they said unto the blind man, What sayest thou of him that he has opened thine eyes? What do you say about the guy who healed you? Listen to what he said. He is a prophet. He said he's a prophet. 
But the Jews did not believe. Skip down to verse 19. And they asked him, saying, uh, they went and got his parents, okay? They went and got his parents. And here's what they asked his parents. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So is this really? They didn't believe that he was really born blind, okay? They were like, we've seen him his whole life, but we're, we're not really willing to count uh, this miracle to Jesus because we don't think he was born blind. They're trying to disprove Jesus. And, uh, and then verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We can't deny that. Now listen to this. Pay attention to this. But by what means he now sees? We know not. This is his parents talking. Or who has opened his eyes? We know not. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. Maybe uh, the blind man never went to his parents. Maybe he didn't have time to say, hey, parents, I was, I, I'm healed. Maybe he, he was so excited going around uh, before he went to the Pharisees. He didn't have time. Maybe, he just, the, maybe the parents really didn't know. But that's not the case because look how John in verse 22 says, this is why that they answered like that. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he, meaning Jesus, was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Why did they respond like that? Because if they would have said it was Jesus, it was that guy who's saying to be God, the Messiah that healed him, if they had said that, not only would they have been kicked out of the church, like they could have took their letter and went to another Baptist church. No, that's not. It was kicked out of the religion. It was kicked out of eternal life. It was kicked out of the community. No more jobs, no more support, no more help. You're done. You're out of here if you parents say that. So they, they crumble and they say, just ask him. That's pretty smart, you think, on their part. But John here is trying to point out that these Pharisees think they've got it all together. They think they're the ones who have memorized the first five books of the Bible, know the Old Testament. They're the ones that see. And the parents, you're expecting them to be the ones responsible for their children and take up for them. Wrong? No. It's actually the blind man who can see. It's actually the blind man who's just been healed who has courage and willing to stand up. Listen to what he says. In verse um, 24, they ask him again. They called the blind man and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Jesus, agree with us that Jesus is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered and he said, Whether he be a sinner or not, I know not. But one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. I want you to feel that there in the text. I want you to see it. What is it? I want you to see all these arguments, why they have that Jesus is a sinner. He's against the Sabbath. He does all these bad things. I want you to hear a testimony in the midst of a bad argument. There's so many debates about God in our culture. We are no doubt a post-Christian nation. Maybe you could say we're a post-Christian community. You say, really? Did you know that within a, I believe, Pastor David, you tell me if I'm right, you can correct me, within a 10-mile radius of this church, there are 40 lost people for every seat in this auditorium. 40. 40. In other words, there's enough lost people within a 10-mile radius to fill 40 churches just like this one. Maybe we are a post-Christian community. And with all these debates, with all these people who are questioning God, I want you to feel the power of a testimony in the midst of bad arguments. I think of John chapter 4. When the Jesus, uh, the woman at the well, she just went to the city and said, this man tells me everything that's wrong with me, everything I've ever done. He knows it. That's all he said. And they all come and were amazed at Jesus. Well, that's all she said. Um, I, I think of 
uh, one of my favorite professors at Tacoa, his name was Dr. Collier. And uh, Mr. Collier, uh, he told us as he was a pastor, there was a prominent Jehovah's Witness going around in his neighborhood where he lived. And he went uh, and sat down with a woman who the Jehovah's Witness had come to, and he said, I would like an opportunity to persuade you the Christian faith and not the Jehovah's false cult faith. She said, okay, well, let's just all get together. Let's have coffee. So he said, okay. He was ready. He come with the Greek text. And, you know, Jehovah's Witness don't believe that um, Jesus is the Son of God. They believe him and the devil are brothers, that he's just like a man. He's not God. And he come. He was ready to attack that and prove Jesus is God with the Greek. I mean, he was going to slam it home. He got there, and the gentleman didn't even know for the Jehovah's Witness that the New Testament was written in Greek. He had no idea. I mean, he was talking over both their heads. I mean, he said it was a, it was a void point. They didn't even understand. But he, he looked at him. He looked at that woman. He said, ma'am, I want you to know. When I met Jesus, he changed my life. And he is, in fact, the Son of God. Because he has power, he changed my life. When I accepted the gospel. <laughs> and the Jehovah's Witness simply said, I've never experienced God like that. That was it. Had no, no, no testimony. Had nothing. <laughs> I once was blind. Now I see. The Bible uh, says that we go through trials and tribulations. This man was blind. Now he could see. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, you and I go through trials and tribulations to help others who go through trials and tribulations. But is that a sufficient answer for still why God allows bad things to happen to good people? I, I, I think not. I think there's a, another answer here in the text. Now I want you to think real quick about this story through the eyes of the blind man. Go back to verse 1 with me. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind. For Imagine this man's been begging. We know that he is, his parents said he's of age. He's an older, uh, at least teenager, maybe older than that. Uh, he's been sitting there. His, I mean, it's on the Sabbath. He's there on the road to the synagogue begging for alms, begging for things. He's done this his whole life. Imagine being blind your whole life. In that culture, it meant no friends, no family, no education, outcast, and ostracized. That's all he had. No joys, nothing. He couldn't see. he never seen a sunset, never seen a sunrise, ne never seen, I mean, just all the things he'd have missed out in life. And then all of a sudden, this man comes by, takes a little interest in him, starts talking to him. Well, then that guy starts hawking a loogie. Oh, my goodness. And I bet the man thought, well, there's other people that spit on me before. This is nothing new. And then these guys come behind him and start talking about, hey, is this guy a sinner or his parents a sinner that he was born this way? I mean, he said, well, this debate, I hear this debate every day from, from all the other religious leaders. Nothing new here. Then all of a sudden, splat! Splat! I bet he didn't see that coming. <laughs> and then the guy says, get up and go to this pool. That's miles away. Question, did he go? He went. <laughs> Nothing else had worked. He went, and here's the question I want to ask you. Did he get healed? Was he able to see before he went or after he went? Well, the text very clearly says at the end of verse 7, at the end, he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. When did he, when did he receive his sight? After he went to the pool. After he trusted to do what Jesus said to do. I want to propose to you tonight that there is an element of faith in answering the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow evil? Well, what do you mean? Keep going through the text with me very quickly. What did, he, what did this guy find out about Jesus? First, he said in verse 11, who healed him? It was a man. Then verse 17, who healed him? It was a prophet. And then he's being interviewed. He says this guy is uh, not a sinner. He said apparently he's from God. 
But then he finds out something more about him. They cast him out. I imagine him being in front of the Pharisees, and he sees these guys with phylacteries around their head and this red robe, and they're all dressed up. And, and the funny thing is, he's never seen them before. I mean, like, he doesn't, I bet he's thinking, these guys probably look goofy. Like, what's going on with all this, you know, what all they got going on they're wearing up there? And they cast him out. I bet he thought, well, I'm never in, so what do, you, what do I have to lose here? They cast him out. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, so what did he do? He went looking for him. John chapter 10 is about Jesus being the great shepherd. There's no doubt John has, here's Jesus doing shepherd work. And Jesus found him, and he said to him, Do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord? that I might believe on him. And Jesus said to him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He saw that he was the man. He was a prophet. He was not a sinner. He sent from God. So he has a sight, but he's learning to see. And he, he receives Christ, and he believes, and he worships there. What are you trying to say? There's an element of faith, I believe, in answering the question, why do bad things happen to good people? What are you talking about? When we ask the question, why does God allow or ordain, or why is evil things and bad things happen to good people, you and I have to ask that question at the foot of the cross. There's a saying, I couldn't track it, I don't know who came up with it, but I think it's applicable to the text and what we're trying to get at here tonight. Where you and I cannot see the hand of God or trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Where you and I can't trace God's hand, we must trust his heart. How can you say that? Look at, the, look at the cross. God did not ask any of us here or any person ever born in history to go through a world of pain and suffering and death and tremendous hurt without he himself enduring the very worst of it. It was God who sent his son to die the most excruciating and worst pain. The worst way to die was on a cross. That's why they do it. It was torture. It was for embarrassment. They tore Jesus where he didn't even look like a man, a person anymore. Hardly had skin on his body. Then they nailed him to a tree for embarrassment. And God the Father sent his son to do that for you and me. And the physical part wasn't even the worst. It was the spiritual where he became sin. The whole sin of the world. He took that upon himself. You and I cannot even truly imagine that. But that, that's the gospel. That's our God who didn't send anybody into a world of, of this caliber of wickedness without he himself going through the very worst of it. There was, uh, I'll never forget when I was at college, there was a chapel and Dr. Thomas, good looking like Mark, uh, he's actually bald, actually. Uh, but he was a pastor in he was a pastor in Iraq at the First Baptist Church in Iraq, actually. Um, and extreme terrorists had come through his community, wrecked his church. One of his members of his church, one woman, he, they went into her house, they grabbed her children, and they murdered them right in front of her and made her watch. Pastor goes and tries to console the woman. She says, Pastor, you have no idea what's this like. Tears in his eyes. He said, I don't. I can't even imagine. But I know one who does. That's God. He knows what it's like. He's seen his son die the very worst way possible, just as you. And you can fellowship with God right there because he's the only person I know who knows what you know and can feel what you feel. 
Is that a sufficient answer to the question? Well, well, then, why, friend, why did God not stop it? Why did God stop the gun? Why did God not stop those flying into the tower? Why did God not stop the woman from committing abortion? Why not? What we are essentially asking God to do is to take away free will when we ask the question, why didn't God stop it? You see, what did the man do here? He worshipped. Worship requires free will. Track with me. the greatest thing in life is love. The greatest emotion, the greatest characteristic, the greatest experience is love. And for me and you to experience love, we must have free will. Because if you have love without free will, uh, that's not truly love. That's coercion. That, that's being forced to do something. And, and that's not love at all. That's being a robot. So when Adam and Eve sinned, he chose to allow it so that he could choose to allow them to know him. What did this man learn to know? Who Jesus was, a man, a prophet from God, sinless. So if God was to stop all this evil in the world, he would have to take away free will. And by taking away free will, he would take away the option for anybody to ever know him. Because for me and you to know him, we must choose to accept his free gift that he gave. If you would, would you bow your head with me tonight? I don't know where you're at spiritually emotionally, in life. But perhaps the question of why did God allow this to happen in my life has kept you back from Him. I want to propose to you tonight that God is a loving God and God allows evil and allows people to make choices that have consequences so that you would have the opportunity and I would have the opportunity to choose Him, to choose a relationship with Him. And God is so great that He takes all the things in this world that are bad and evil and works them together for good. That's what He said in Romans eight twenty eight. For those that love Him, called to His purpose, He works all things together for good. That's not that all things are good. Things are bad and terrible in this world, but our God wants to work it for good. But for that to be true in your life, you have to know Him. Be called to His purpose. So tonight, if you've for whatever reason, never come to a saving relationship with God. Maybe tonight you would come like this man did as a beggar. That's the only way you and I can come to God is a beggar. You say, God, I know I've sinned. I know my sin has separated me from you. But God, I believe that you come into this world of wickedness and death and sent your son to die for me. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Lord, be my Savior. If you prayed that just right now, nobody's looking around. Look, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I just want you to look up here at me. He said, Pastor, I, I, that's me tonight. I, 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 I just did that. I've never accepted Christ before, but I just did it. Just look up here at me. I'm not asking you. Just, just look up here at me. I want to I pray for you. I want to thank God for you. Awesome. Well, maybe tonight... You've been asking this question as a Christian. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did this happen to my family member, my friend? Friend, I want to tell you this. Job never knew why all that happened to him. He never knew about the devil and uh, God having a conversation in heaven. He never knew about it. The disciples never knew what was going to happen with this blind man. Me and you never see it. But here's what I want to propose to you tonight, Christian. Where we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Because if he worked the very worst thing in this world, the death of his son, for our good, friend, can he not take the terrible things me and you go through and work them for our very good? Maybe tonight you just need to come 
and exercise faith and say, God, I believe and I'm going to trust your heart and know that you've got a greater plan. I'm going to hand it over. Maybe you need to let a burden go tonight like that. Someone's been tearing you down. You need to say, God, I just lay it at your feet tonight. I'm going to trust you and I'm going to let it go because you're God and I'm not. Father, would you, in this time of invitation, receive those who have accepted you? God, would you give peace to those who need to lay this burden down and believe that you are, in fact, a good father and you have our best in mind? We ask it in Jesus' name.